completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Just six months after Karen Ayash's daughter Ornella was born, she was diagnosed with San Filippo syndrome, a rare genetic disorder. Doctors told her Ornella would likely live for just over a decade, and there was nothing she could do about it. Left with no option, she created one herself. Three weeks later, with no medical background, Karen co-founded Lysogene, a biotech company targeting the syndrome. Today, Lysogene is a publicly traded company making major advancements in the treatment of rare genetic disorders. This episode reminds us that no, or never, is only the start of the conversation. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Gross Show. Karen, can we begin by having you tell us a little bit about Lysogene? Of course, Megan. So, as you said, Lysogene is a clinical stage uh, biotechnology company. Uh, and the mission of the company is really to develop treatments, innovative treatments, using the gene therapy approach to modify uh, significantly the lives of our patients. Our patients are exclusively young children affected with lethal neurodegenerative disorders. Now, I know that you started Lysogene um, with your co-founder, and before that, you didn't have any background at all in biotech. Your co-founder did, but you were brand new to the space. And you had a personal reason for starting the company. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. I created the company because I found myself in a very, very uh, dramatic situation. I had my first child in 2005, and a few months after her birth, my husband and I were told that Ornella, our daughter, was affected with a very severe uh, neurological disease with uh, no treatment and most dramatically no hope for treatment. So my role as a parent, I thought, was and still is to protect my child. And uh, rather than taking this statement uh, for granted, I mean the fact that there would be nothing to save my child, as I heard from the clinicians, I decided to make my own research on the disease to meet with uh, doctors, researchers, but also uh, biotechnology companies already involved for some of them in the space of rare diseases. And little by little, I realized that maybe what I heard, what I I had been told was not so true, and that maybe uh, impossible uh, was not the right word uh, when considering the situation of Ornella. So even though I didn't have any background in uh, the biotech space or medicine or science, I had already a pretty long career behind me, like 10, 12 years in uh, the financial uh, industry and consulting services. And I decided to uh, leverage on what I had learned uh, during my uh, career to develop a program, a research program. So obviously what I brought to the table was not scientific nor uh, medical again, but what I brought to the table was very much needed my ability to uh, raise funding 
to build a complex program, put different pieces together. I think that's what I did. Yeah. And so there is a lot there. I love this idea that impossible was not the right word Mm -hmm. uh, to describe what was ahead of you. It must have taken some time to get to that, though, right? I mean, describe for me that moment of coming home, faced with this tough news, and how long it took you to move from a situation of what I'm guessing must have felt like helplessness into one of action. Yeah, that's right. So I think there is nothing more traumatic than being told that your child is not going to leave very long, that your child is going to suffer, and that no one can help her. It's really the most devastating thing you can hear, I believe, in your life. And uh, obviously, the consequence of being informed of that by uh, a doctor was completely devastating for my husband, myself, and our parents. And the, the, the reaction then is like, you feel like being in a, a sort of aquarium, like you are very, very, uh, you feel very isolated. And uh, it's like if a wall uh, or again, a glass window had been had been built between you and the rest of the world. Yeah. You have a sensation of complete, not only isolation, but of complete devastation. And you just don't know how the next day will look like. You, you're not just sure that you're going to reach the next day because it's so overwhelming. It's so hard to to, to, to face a situation, to cope, to adjust. And well, then depending on the people, I suppose, you may enter and, and you have to actually into a resilience process. And in our case, I think it took probably a few weeks to adjust to the situation, but it took less than this to react. So if I remember correctly, I probably started Googling uh, on the internet with my husband one or two weeks after the diagnosis. Right. Now, a few weeks is not very long at all as as I think about it mm-hmm. to, to process that kind of news and to do some research and then to get into a position of deciding to act on it. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think you know that urgency was there? Like, What got you from point A to point B in just a matter of a few weeks? Probably the, the the belief that what you are told in life is not always true uh, or not always accurate. And that even though uh, the doctor who told us there's not going to be any research for that disease in the next 20 years and obviously nothing for your child, even if that doctor wants to treat his patients, he doesn't have the same uh, feeling of emergency than a parent can have. So that's a major difference. That's a major difference. The fact that I was personally and emotionally completely involved. That's the first thing. And second, I think that I uh, was probably inhabited by a, a strong, very strong feeling of duty uh, towards my child. And I think that everyone does whatever he can or she can for a child. But my personal perception and, 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 and belief again was that if there was something I could do, I had to use what I knew. I had to use my skills and I had to do it very rapidly because we had a chance in a way, which was to be informed of this diagnosis early in the life of our child 
which is not always the case. So based on the life expectancy of patients with St. Filippo syndrome, because that's the name of the disease, uh, which is around the age of 12, 13, depending, depending on the child, obviously, and you, you may have uh, other ages, but that's roughly the, 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 the rule. What's the natural course of the disease tells us a child will live up to the age of 12, 13. We had the diagnosis when my child was five, six months of age. So in, in my mind, there was something like, hey, uh, girl, you do have some time to make a difference. So if you want to make a difference, you have to start as soon as you can. And that was the, uh, the triggering uh, power that, I, that helped me. Absolutely. So you decided, I think you're right. I think there are a couple of different reactions that you could have to news like that. You could retreat into yourself. You could try to distract yourself. And it sounds like you decided to get fully immersed in the problem. Yes. Now, you're, you make that decision, your husband and you, and then you have to put it to action. Yep. So how did you find your co-founder? How did you figure out the pieces that you needed to fight this diagnosis? That's that's a very very good question, um, and and looking back to these days, uh, I'm just amazed by myself by the fact that it all happened. But you know, the first thing you do usually when you have a rare disease or a child with a rare disease is going on the internet, and I think that our lives would have been probably more difficult before the era of uh, the internet. Mm. So you find that how uh, whatever rare your disease is. There are other people with the same disease. So you start, you know, chatting with them. And the next step is that you discover that there is really a worldwide community in place dealing with rare diseases made of parents, patient organizations, but also other types of stakeholders who have a strong wish to uh, interact with patients and patient groups and so on to help research progress. And here I'm thinking of uh, researchers, scientists, doctors, learned societies, and uh, etc. So I discovered that I was not alone, that there was a huge community uh, there, and that the, the purpose of that community was to raise awareness about rare diseases, but also to foster research and so on. And my point was that I, I didn't want to engage into community actions, because I have no talent or no skills for that, right. but that if there was something I could do to help research in finding money or, again, put a, a complex program together, then I might be helpful. And I talked about this with friends or colleagues uh, in this community, and very rapidly they told me, you know, when it's about a, a, a neurological disease, you may want to think about gene therapy, and if you want to do so, we know somebody, his name is Olivier Danos, and he's currently available to help uh, the community of patients with rare diseases, and you should meet him. And then we met, and uh, since then, we, we've been working together. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think that's so interesting because initially your doctor had said this is a really small population and that yep. it's it's such a small population that there's not really a, a good reason to invest in it. There's not really enough uh, force behind responding to it. That's right. And what you've discovered is that on the internet, there is no such thing as a, as a small population and that you're able to connect with these people globally to build a movement together around this need. Yeah, that's right. So, so you have to remember that 
the Orphan Drug Act in the U.S. dates back to the 1990s, I would say. So in 2005, when I started working in that space, there was already a community settled and increasing its uh, outreach. But just a few people, people in, in the hospitals would not necessarily be aware of that or sensitive to that. But as patients' parents, we are, uh, I believe, extremely well organized and uh, working together in a very, very smart way. And what I was completely amazed at when I started the uh, gene therapy program for San Filippo syndrome was that we were actually developing really best practices in how to develop a drug. Because if you look at my company or back at the beginning of the program on San Filippo that I, that I founded, we very rapidly worked in a very in- integrated fashion with, at the same table, the parents, the, uh, the doctors, investigators, the scientists, but also, because that's a need, the, uh, the lawyers and the people who were funding us. So the secret really was in having everyone sitting around the table, agreeing on a single, very uh, straightforward objective, developing a gene therapy treatment for human patients and, and organizing all these activities together. So my role was to find money, bring money and be the pilot. How long did it take to get to that single objective where you have this network of, of people who are very passionate about this and they're supportive, but you have to organize them? I would say that it took me two years. First, uh, I had to educate myself about the disease uh, and related diseases. I had to educate myself about the different therapeutic approaches that were uh, already in place for certain diseases and those who were uh, under development for other diseases and what was coming next. So this took me some time. Right. I also needed time to find money and really put the right message in place to be able to attract money. And that message was there is a commercial opportunity to develop uh, what we call often drugs because this is a special niche in the pharmaceutical market. You can make money maybe not billions at the beginning, but millions for sure. And second, with rare diseases, we are developing innovative approaches that will then be applicable to more chronic diseases or less uh, rarer or more common diseases. And I strongly believe in that. I think that's a very fair statement. And that's what I said to people who brought money to the company. So... It sounds like in the beginning, it must have been a kind of terrifying, humbling experience to start in an entirely new industry and to, you know, be over your head in the beginning and start to learn as you were sort of putting together this this company. Can you take me back to those early days and maybe the early conversations that you had with Olivier and describe that for us? Yes. So Olivier has always been very supportive and especially at the beginning as a sort of go-between. Just an example for the program, we needed to have physician, medical doctors uh, working with us. And uh, believe me or not, uh, showing up as a mother, not so old, not too uh, ugly, I would say, and pretending with no medical records, with no medical background and so on. And so in front of uh, a doctor and tell him, uh, you know, I'm going to help finding a cure for my child's disease. 
they were just, you know, glazing at me, staring at me as if I was an alien. So Olivier helped building my credibility to these people. And he helped me understand the mindsets and the, the culture of people from academia and and medical, the medical sector, for instance. So that's the type of things that happened then. And did you do the same for him when it came to investors and the business side of this? Absolutely. I mean, we still have very uh, productive exchanges and cross-fertilization discussions uh, on these topics today. A few years ago, uh, Olivier switched and uh, went to the industry full-time. And I believe that probably from his experience at Lysogen or with me, he learned a lot about uh, how to talk to private investors right. and how to manage or better understand the codes and standards of the industry and the financial world at large. So oh, that's really interesting. And, and you're carrying it forward now um, on your own. Uh, yes and no, because yes, Olivier is a less present and he used to, but uh, that has not, this is not new. Olivier has a full-time job and his position at Lysogen has always been to act as uh, our scientific mentor Got it. and to sit on uh, the board of directors, which he still does. But obviously, as I raised some significant funding first in 2014 and then this year in France, uh, following a listing and IPO on the European uh, Euronext Stock Exchange, uh, I've been able to build up a team of experts. So we are now 18, dozen people in Paris, five, six in uh, the US, in Cambridge, in the Candle Square area, and are really developing on both sides of the ocean with experts in each area of importance, relevance for us, whether it be manufacturing or non-clinical studies, clinical studies. I have absolutely wonderful uh, team uh, around me. It sounds like there's been some major milestones as, as you've seen Lysogene grow. I'd love to go back to um, a personal milestone, which was seeing your daughter go through that first trial. What was that like? The first trial was a safety one. Where So I mean by that, that what we needed to show to the authority was that what we were doing, i.e. using uh, what we call an AAV vector, to deliver a gene, a functional gene into the brains of our patients was safe and well tolerated. So that is a surgery which lasts uh, only two hours, which is absolutely eventless. And during that surgery, the patient will receive a certain dose of functional gene or DNA. And that's what we did in 2011 and 2012. So that's a once in a lifetime delivery. And our patients were followed up uh, to five years, and they uh, have been doing very well with respect to safety, which was what we had to show to the authorities. On top of that, we've had very encouraging signs or signals of efficacy, especially with respect to uh, major features of the disease that are hyperactivity, really severe hyperactivity. Right and uh, severe uh, sleep uh, disorders. So our patients progressed with respect to these symptoms. Since then, uh, I mean since 2011, we worked uh, hard to improve everything we could. We had only four patients in the uh, previous study. In the next study, which we aim at launching 
early 2018 uh, in the US and in Europe, we'll have more patients, probably 20, if not a little more. And the purpose of that clinical trial, clinical study, human study, will be to uh, not only show the safety of what we are doing, which is already done, but to uh, show the efficacy of what we are doing. And we've improved the product versus the one which was used in the first study. We've improved the delivery approach. Recently, we uh, secured a partnership with, a partnering, sorry, with a US-based company developing very, very uh, nice injection cannula. So without yep. being too technical, this is the device being used for the neurosurgery. So we have selected a very nice device. We will also have a much more powerful product, better tools to evaluate our patients. So that's the next step for Lysogen for uh, our San Filippo program. Nice. And so before we shift gears and kind of talk about the biotech industry as a whole, can you tell me how your daughter's day-to-day life has changed as a result of your work here? It has changed a lot. And from most importantly, a few months after uh, she received our investigational medicinal product, she started being much more calm than she used to be, which uh, in reality means that uh, our lives somehow went back to, I cannot say normal, but to something that we could manage. Before the treatment, she was just keeping on running around, breaking everything she could break, putting herself in danger, putting the people around her in danger. And most importantly, we had to live in a house which was more like a bunker than anything else, completely surrounded by a fence And there should not be any space in the fence because Ornella would have escaped and run in the street with absolutely no sense of fear. So this is how we lived before. And before the treatment, we, my husband and I never had a single normal night uh, at home because Ornella would just keep on moving all the night and shouting, yelling, uh, singing, laughing uh, without any reason. After the surgery, she uh, started sleeping at night through the night. That's a major difference. And since then, it had re- it has remained like that. So our lives have completely changed. And the life of her sister as well has changed a lot because the early years of my second daughter were really, really tough for her. Yeah, and I imagine, I mean... Even just the ability to sleep through the night on a more regular basis has got to open you up in terms of your ability to think more clearly and, um, you know, put yourself into the work as well. Of course. It's got to be hard to do all that to start a business while you're also dealing with this dire situation. Yes, (laughs) it was very, very, very complicated, but we made it. (laughs) You did. You made it. Absolutely. (laughs) Your whole family. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the industry as a whole. What role do you see for-profit companies like yours playing in the future of medicine? We need to have more and more research and development activities. And the more these activities are in the hands of uh, agile companies, the better it is. So I believe that small companies like ours will play a a tremendous role in uh, fostering the development of innovative therapies 
able to modify the course of very severe diseases with currently no treatments like uh, most of the neurological diseases. Yeah, it's interesting because so the goal for for lysogene is really clear. Come up with a treatment or um, address these specific diseases. There's a finish line. Yeah. What have you learned about how information is shared in this space um, to get you to that finish line faster? So first of all, we are working uh, quite closely with patient groups. So that may be uh, something obvious for uh, young people like you, because you uh, belong to an era where I believe you're very much used to multi-stakeholders, discussions and interactions. Right. And things are much e- more even than they used to be. But in the pharma industry, traditionally, my uh, sentiment is that the drug developers are very far from the patients they pretend to treat or cure. They now try to work with patient communities, but basically this is not in the DNA of a big pharma company, whereas it is in the DNA of a company like Lysogen. The consequence is that, for instance, taking again the example of patient advocacy groups, Mm. we will never develop a protocol of study of research without uh, sharing this uh, knowledge and the, the way we are thinking and what we are uh, trying to do with patient advocacy groups, because at the end of the day, they are the end users of the drug we are developing. So they are willing to share their knowledge in a completely non-competitive setting, just because they know we are going to make the best use of the knowledge they have of their own disease or of their child's disease. Because the better you know the disease, the better you are with respect to the likelihood of your drug to succeed. So that seems to be obvious, but uh, I'm not sure it's so uh, obvious in everyone's mind. What stands in the way? Is it fear of competition? Is it just, you know, they're closed off because they've always been closed off? What prevents that kind of sharing? I believe that there is always considerations around IP questions and people always get very territorial when it comes to uh, data protection and data ownership, which is absolutely normal. But we have to be cautious because the data that we are generating, which are ours uh, by definition, can at some point for some of them be treated as non-competitive information as long as it helps uh, the whole field and benefit to the company at the end of the day. So there are uh, different ways to look at data. And uh, in the rare disease space, it seems that uh, the scope of non-competitive data is bigger than what we see in uh, diseases that are more addressed by the pharma industry. And the reason is we have less patients so each data is of uh, crucial important critical importance right and uh, the rare disease patients are willing to share and expand the scope of non-competitive data they have themselves in order to help the industry progressing the treatments and so you're able to move faster as a result of that yes makes sense what are some things that people can learn from your experience of starting lysogene um, that we should never 
never taken uh, this word impossible for granted and that uh, we can always uh, try to make the world uh, better, I believe, whoever we are. Uh, I strongly believe in uh, thinking positively and acting positively on, a, on an everyday basis. There is always something we can do, always. But my personal experience tells that with my background, I could, I could find a way to help uh, my child and other patients with the same disease. So the message is, Try to uh, try to know what about what you can do and leverage on that, and everyone can can help. Do you ever personally think about what comes after lysogene? I'd like to bring lysogene very very far. Uh, so the next step for me uh, would be to get still more funding, more capital for the company, expand the company, uh, especially in the U.S. More than one third of my team uh, is uh, is uh, now U.S. based. So I don't exactly know when this will end uh, right. and if it ends uh, sometimes. But if I had to think about what I would do after Lysogen, I would probably write my story <laughs> first yeah. and uh, fin- finally share all I've learned, uh, but also engage into uh, humanitarian or philanthropic actions because I have discovered that helping the others and, and putting, us, putting oneself at the service of the community and uh, of the others is really, really what brings me the biggest satisfaction, I would say, and and uh, serenity. Absolutely. Well, it's truly a remarkable story. I really appreciate you sharing it with us, Karen. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, no, thank you. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening. If you want to support the show, you could rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps spread the word. And if you want to drop us a line, we're always around on Twitter at The Gross Show. We'll be sure to respond.